Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of RX Unedited. My name is Dewey, an inpatient pharmacist. You should also say you don't like Spider-Man, too, Dewey. Oh, we're going to do that. <laughs> My name is Jobin. I'm an ED pharmacist. I love Spider-Man. Okay, just to defend myself, um, I, I'm not a huge fan of Spider-Man comics, but I do think the Spider-Man movies are excellent. The later, the latest two that they have, right? It's only yeah, two yeah, so far. Yeah, yeah. With Tom Holland, yeah, yes. great. Yes, and I'm sorry if I offended most of you out there. <laughs> yes, you should be offended. <laughs> <laughs> so the movies are good. It's the the character, like the comic book character. I'm not a huge fan of. Okay, fine. That's fine. All right, let's get serious now. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyways, today's episode, we want to do a little bit, um, or we want to do a case presentation style to you guys and you know hopefully that you'll find it interesting uh, as much as we did uh, this is a case that Jobin you actually saw in the in the ED right do you want to tell us a little bit about this case yeah no I was honestly shocked when I saw this case it was very confusing um, yeah so it's just this elderly gentleman who presented the ED he had COVID like 30 days ago, he was vaccinated. He didn't get hospitalized for his COVID bout, but he presented today with like general weakness, shortness of breath that wasn't improving. So, I mean, initially the team was thinking like, maybe this is like residual, like impact from like COVID or he just has something else. He was also older, maybe had CHF. It could be a whole host of like generalized tiredness and weakness. You could argue a lot of people are like that these days. Um, I'm so, like that most of the days. <laughs> yeah. So like his initial set of vitals, nothing too crazy. I mean, the only alarming thing out of it was like his heart rate was 124, but apparently he might've had a history of AFib. It wasn't very clear. There was a lot of questions in this whole entire case. Um, even just looking at his home meds, like he was on Eloquist, but people weren't sure whether it was for AFib or DVT history. He was on aspirin, Torvastatin, Farsiga. Flovent, Lasix, Lantus, Metoprolol, a few other meds in there. Um, yeah, he was on a wide assortment of meds, and people were we were trying to piece it together as to what he could possibly be here for. Um, and typical, we just get like a basic set of labs, so like a basic metabolic panel, CBC, um, and we go from there. So we get the first, we get the uh, CBC back. His white count's fine, so we're like, all right. Probably not an infection. Then we get the CB, uh, CMP back. That's where it gets exciting. <laughs> so his sodium is 131. So it's just a little bit under. His potassium is 5.3. Uh, his CO2 is 8, which is very low. His creatinine was 2. His BUN is 43. Um, and his anion gap was 23. So <laughs> he had a significant anion gap. And we're like, what? is going on so right after we can see the anion gap we're like all right i mean oh and then the sugar is only 78 so we're just like okay i mean and his main presentation was tachycardia you said no it was just shortness of breath oh, and generalized weakness and generalized <laughs> like, weakness about a month out from having a bout of COVID, like the only vital that was abnormal initially was the tachycardia at like 124 but if you had afib okay, okay. um yeah, so 
they decide like, all right, we're just going to get a beta hydroxy, get a VBG with lactate to see what's going on. Is there like some sort of like acidosis or something? Um, what's going on? So the VBG comes back and the pH is 7.2. And it's just like, okay, this guy is like slightly acidotic. What's going on here? Hmm. And then his uh, beta hydroxy comes back and it was 5.72. So then it's like, what? Is this guy in DKA? <laughs> is this even possible? <laughs> and yeah. Oh, and then I forgot. There was a, we got a lactate and that was like sl- ever so slightly. It wasn't, it wasn't elevated yet, but it was, it was 1.6 on the VBG, but yeah, no, it was uh, very confusing and head-scratching. Um, it was a head-scratcher, to be honest. It really made no sense. And then it wasn't until actually one of the ED doctors was just like, oh, wait, I know what this is. I've seen this before. Is this patient on a... Actually, do you want to reveal it now, or do we want to go into it later? No, you can continue your story. All right. I'm, I'm hooked. <laughs> yeah, so crazy, and this is what we're going to talk about today so the ED attending asked the nurse and the PA who was involved in this case, is the patient on the Farsiga still? And it's like, yeah, yeah, the patient apparently still takes the Farsiga. Apparently, I learned that too that day. Uh, Farsiga, Invacana, Jardians, that class of medicine, the SGL2s, they can cause euglycemic DKA. Dun, 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 and that's dun. what we're here to talk about. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very rare side effect, but it is very much possible, and everyone was confused. <laughs> yes. Um, so, thank you for the great, great back uh, backstory to today's episode, Jovan. So, we're going to talk about euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. The name itself sounds very interesting. Like I didn't, I didn't even know that this is possible until you told me about the case. Yeah. I've never seen anything like I was just it, it does feel funny to say you glycemic. It's just like what? Yeah. I mean you could even argue this guy with seventy eight on like a non fasting glucose is like you're borderline like almost hypoglycemic. So does he have a history of of diabetes or was he on the SGLT twos for heart failure? So he Do has a know? history of diabetes. He was apparently on Lantus in the past. Okay. He wasn't the most compliant guy to start to. So that doesn't help the situation. Gotcha. So that's why, like, the generalized shortness of breath, weakness, it's like, is this from, like, med noncompliance? I mean, the BMP was not pretty to start. Like, an elevated potassium, an elevated BU and creatinine, you're like, is this CKD? Is this on top of, like, heart failure? Like, what's going on here? Uh-huh. This guy's got a lot of problems going on. When we talk diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA usually is a medical emergency, right? That patients um, who with diabetes will present to the emergency room. Usually there are three main uh, triad that you would see in the patient. Number one, hyperglycemia, right? Usually defined as glucose of very high above 200. Uh, usually they're in like the 300, 400s normally. Easily. Yeah. And um, number two is they will likely have an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Uh, And the third thing that they will present with is ketonemia or uh, an acidotic state uh, due to the presence of ketones in blood. So usually those are your typical presentation. Um, In this case, what makes it crazy or what made it 
interesting is that the patient presented with blood glucose, like you said, in the 70s. 70s, right? yes. Wow. Like a normal, and then like his pH was acidotic, and then he had the beta hydroxy that was like elevated to like five something, and he had ketones in the urine. So, like, he had two out of the three. Yeah, but but normally when you when you say DKA, people automatically look for that hyperglycemia. That's automatically the first thing anybody yeah. would look at. Is- I mean, honestly, we see the elevated sugar because like we always get point of care glucose in the ED. And, like, as soon as we see a point-of-care glucose that's, like, 600 or whatever elevator, we're like, this guy's probably here for DK. Like, if yep. they have the shortness of breath and stuff like that. Like, yep. the shortness of breath was also another sign of, like, oh, he's acidotic. He's trying to blow off all that CO2. So you're just, like, you're just thinking about those things. And like, DKA. And then you see the point-of-care and you're like, yeah, this is definitely DKA. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of get all the other labs to just confirm your, your theory. This guy is weird because he started off with a sugar normal. <laughs> yeah. So this prompted us to look into this disease state a little bit. Um, turns out the euglycemic DKA was first described back in the 70s, in 1973 to be exact. Uh, so it's fairly fairly new. It's a fairly new, in my opinion, right, within the last 30 or 40 years now. And the key character, if you haven't guessed already, is patients presenting with DKA but with a glucose less than 200. Usually there are various causes that... Uh, can trigger this. The common ones are patients being on an SGLT2 inhibitors. They're pregnant or they have decreased caloric intake. So those are the main three that I've seen in the literature. Um, There are also other causes such as heavy alcohol use uh, or like a recent insulin use prior to presentation, cocaine abuse, pancreatitis, sepsis, uh, chronic liver disease, or liver cirrhosis. Do you want to go into, like, the the pathogenesis a little bit, Joe? Yeah, yeah. With euglycemic DKA, so in typical DKA, the problem is the patients have, like, a high degree of insulin deficiency and insulin resistance. And, like, it's true because I feel like a lot of these patients that you normally have in your type 1s or type 2s that present with DKA, they're on, like, whopping doses of Lantus and Novolog or whatever insulins they use, but it's just not working or they're just non-compliant and plenty of times i've seen the insulin drips here go to like max out and we're just like i can't believe you're getting like 12 units an hour for like a few hours like crazy um but in euglycemic dk it's actually not the case like they actually are able to produce insulin relatively normal and and the insulin resistance actually isn't that bad like they respond well to the insulin um now the the main thing in euglycemic DKA patients is that they actually have an increase in glucose urine release, like urine clearance. So, like the renal clearance of glucose is much more elevated than your typical DKA patients. Yeah, and to look at some of the common causes, uh, first let's look at pregnancy because uh, I think you know a lot of time pregnancy is uh, and SCOT twos are mentioned in the current literature. Mm-hmm. In pregnancy especially in late stages of pregnancy. So in your second or probably your third trimester of the pregnancy, there's a much higher risk uh, for this occurring occurring in women, um, especially women who are diabetic at baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the theory behind it is, so glucose utilization is dramatically increased by the fetus around that time. 
So therefore, the maternal metabolism enters uh, a more catabolic state to pro to to meet that demand of glucose for the fetus, right? So if the body isn't able to keep up, then you're gonna start using fat as fuel, right? So in addition to that, there's you also get respiratory alkalosis in pregnancy, and with this. There's an increase in urinary excretion of bicarb, so now the body can't really use the bicarb as a buffer for the pH changes because you're be, due to the increase in ketones in blood now. So now there's a high presence of ketones. Your blood becomes acidotic. You're not really hyperglycemic in this state, hence euglycemic DKA. Do you want to talk about the SGLT2s? Yes, SGLT2s. So, just by the way that they work. So these guys increase the excretion of glucose in the urine. Now, because there's less glucose in the blood, you don't have as much insulin being secreted because obviously there's not there's nothing for the insulin to be doing. So your body just does its right thing of, all right, we're going to taper off on our insulin production. Now, what happens is now the downside of that is that. Since there's no insulin floating around, it won't cause like pyolysis. So because of that, there's going to be all your free fatty acids are going to go to your liver to be broken down, and that leads to the production of ketones. And once you get the increase in ketones, this is where you start going down the DKA pathway. But your sugar's not elevated because your body kind of did the normal thing of like, I have no sugar, I'm not going to make insulin. So that's where you get one out of the two, and then I mean the free fatty acids and everything like that. The ketones will lead to your acidosis shortly enough. Yeah. And I guess to quickly go over other causes um, of euglycemic DKA, um, another one could be ha you know, having someone on a strict diet or a decreased caloric intake mm -hmm. or starvation. Uh, usually you see this in people, you can see this in people without diabetes. Um, so the idea is that there's a deficit in the amount of carbs that you're, that you're eating, that, that's in your intake. So then your body, again, shifts to lipolysis. You know, there's a shift and in increase in lipolysis. This generates ketones. And in people who are starving over a longer period of time, there's an idea that you're now depleting your glycogen stores to maintain the blood glucose levels, hence you have no glucose. Or that's why the glucose is lower than what's expected, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there, there are physio physiologically, there are, there are ways that can make this possible. But it's still very, very, very interesting. It's very interesting, but it's also very rare too. That's right. just the one thing to keep in mind. It's like, I mean, it's only discovered what you said, 1973. Yeah. And, I mean, and SGL2s have only been around for a few years. Like, have they even been around for 10 years at this point? Maybe? I don't think so. They they weren't around when I was, when we were students. Yeah, they we weren't were, around. Actually, no, were I think they? they were. They were being taught, but I feel like they were the new kids on the block. Like, I don't know if, I don't know if Jardians was on the market. Like, I remember Invocana. Oh, yeah, yeah. At least one of them. I just, yeah. And, oh, you're right. Now I'm remembering. Yeah, I learned that, oh, yeah, they cause amputations. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. about it. <laughs> that's, that's what I remember about yeah. them. Well, I mean, and then just, like, going into a little bit about why we, I think the most important thing really takeaway from this thing in terms of causes, 
I think it's just to be mindful of like SGL twos. And like the main reason why I think we need to be mindful of that is that there was recent literature that came out for SGL twos and use in like cardiac patients. And it's what it decreases like the rate of like strokes and MIs, if I remember correctly, or MIs. I know there are some positive data coming out supporting like clinical outcomes. I'm not sure the exact ones, but I think hospitalization is also part of that. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it too, for especially for your heart failure patients too, it's kind of like a diuretic in a sense. Like, yeah. It, it's allowing for you to secrete out like the glucose. So, I mean, and it's also even for diabetic patients, it's one of the few that can actually help with weight loss. I mean, a lot of your diabetic medicines, like either the weight neutral, even weight gaining in a sense. So everything's for using and increasing the use of SGL2 as time goes on. But so this is why we thought it would be a good idea to just go over it because I think we're going to start seeing this drug. And I'm sure as insurance cover it better and better and better, like, yeah, th- this could be a more common issue than this random one-off issue. Yeah, we may see an increase in incidence of this just because more people are now getting placed on SGLT2s. Yeah, so, I, and I think, like, if I remember correctly, the FDA, like, saw this recent increase, like, back in, like, 2015 or something like that. And I think they, like, put that warning out, too, about, like, you guys seem... But it wasn't that pop... It wasn't that, like, headline of a news. Uh-huh. Like, if I remember, I think, like, Either the FDA put it out or it was like through the American Diabetes or American College of like Endocrinology. Um, they're the ones who like made an announcement about like, oh, yeah, you glycemic like DK is possible to SGL2s. <laughs> so it's known now. And I, I would say it's like, I mean, I wouldn't even say it's known. It's, it's like the information's out there about it, but it's rare to see it. But I think we're going to start seeing more as we go on. Yeah, I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. In terms of management... Uh, <laughs> That's where it gets confusing. Uh, yeah, right? So I guess usually remember or keep in mind that euclycemic DKA, like Jobin was uh, describing earlier, is often a diagnosis of exclusions. Make sure you rule out other forms of uh, ketoacidosis or other causes of the increase in anion gap, metabolic acidosis. Good old mud piles right there. Yep. <laughs> um, in terms of management, like what what did we? Yeah. So what do we got? So the answer still is insulin drip. It's just now it's a little bit more complicated in a sense. So you guys have probably all seen insulin drips plenty of times, but the thing is, you probably don't. Depending on which, especially depending on which area you work in. So in the ED, usually you start the insulin drip. You never got to worry about it again. Someone else is going to take care of it. But now we're going to start where a lot of times the ICU, the step-down unit or the, is at where they're transitioning the patient. Or like, oh, the, the insulin drip is on, but their gap hasn't closed yet. But we still, so we still, need the, we still need the insulin drip on, but their sugar now has dropped below like 200. So we're starting from there. And especially in this guy where his sugar was in the 70s. Yeah, for so just looking at a sugar in the seventies, I I'd be a little anxious starting anyone on insulin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just seems like you're doing everything wrong. <laughs> like so, basically, with this in this situation, what you have to do is you need to get their sugar up. That's the first and foremost thing you need to do. So, in our case, what we ended up doing is we actually had the guy eat a bunch of dextrose tabs. And it led to, like, his sugar, like, doubling. It went to, like, I think the 140s or something like that. Um, but the thing is, once you start an insulin drip, it's going to go down right away. Mm-hmm. So really, like, a lot of the literature, because I literally after I finished that case for the day, I was just like, all right, I'm going to go home and read up on what to do. Um, 
So like a lot of times what they suggest in literature and a lot of it's just case reports, like just running maintenance fluid of like D5 and D10, which is like pretty much the protocol. Like a lot of times once people are below 200 on regular DKA episodes, you start a fluid, you start just D5 just to help keep the sugar up. Now, what made it complicated in this situation is this guy had AKI. (laughs) This guy had everything going wrong. Because he had AKI, you're concerned like, is he going to clear all the insulin as we give it to him? Because the kidneys have to kick it out too. Yeah. So in our specific case, there was a lot of problems going on. So we thought like, and I saw in literature too, like if they're able to eat and you have no concerns of like them, like not protecting their airway and you need to intubate them down the road, if they can eat, go for it. Like if, as long as they're able to, um, cause you want to do everything you can to help like increase the sugar. Like obviously if this guy didn't have any AKA problem, AKI problems or like CHF, like do starting a maintenance fluid drip of like D5 normal saline or just D5 plain, like starting at like 125 or something like that or 100 just to help so that you can at least get the insulin drip up and running. But otherwise, nothing else changes. Run that insulin drip, keep hourly glucose checks. I would say be very vigilant on this one. Yeah. <laughs> like don't let it pass by too much. I mean, you start, honestly, all the literature said too, you start the insulin drips at this normal rate, like of. You just start at like one unit or like 0.1. As long as the glucose, as long as you get the glucose above, up yeah, yeah, at, you, a safety, at a safe point. <laughs> yeah. Like you want it to be as close as you can or above 200 before starting it. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. So I guess in, in summary, in management, it's essentially the same as you would manage a DKA, a regular DKA patient. You still have your cocktail of insulin. Uh, a splash of fluid, um, you know, any electrolytes. Yeah, just keep correction. an eye on the K. I mean, this guy was hyper K, luckily. <laughs> but like, you know that it's going dr- to go yeah, in. I know, yeah, it's going to all go down. Yeah. But, yeah, this was just, like, one of those weird cases that I was just like, I can't believe this is actually happening. It was. I mean, it was a good learning experience. I, I ended up learning a lot just from you telling me about this case and then, like, looking it up on my own. Um, it's interesting. No, it, it definitely is. I mean, I'm sure, and I'm sure we'll get more complicated cases as this, as especially like if new heart failure patients are going to be, and they're diabetic too, like be put on this. And like, I mean, a lot of times those patients are already sick baseline. So you're going to have that fluid concern already for them. You're going to have like the challenges of like managing, how am I going to replete the, like the, I mean, yeah, even repleting the potassium while also repleting like their dextrose so that they can get the insulin drip and keep going on it. So, mm-hmm. It's challenging. Yeah. And I guess there's enough evidence or there's enough, there's enough suspicion um, on the SGLT2s now that the one article I was reading uh, from the European Journal of, of Internal Medicine, they actually recommend now to hold SGLT2 inhibitors during the times that could put the patient at an increased risk for getting DKA just so that they won't get this euglycemic DKA state. Yeah. Right? So those times would be in, like, during an, an acute illness, during surgery, um, like, severe dehydration or, like, excessive alcohol intake. So, you know, they they actually recommend holding this medication now during those times just so that we can prevent euglycemic DKA from happening. Yeah. And I think if I remember what I read correctly, it's it seems like even, and especially if a patient already had an episode of euglycemic DKA, they kind of are recommending to avoid using that same drug class again in that patient, like try to use something else instead. Because 
it's dangerous. It it is really dangerous because, I mean, DK is dangerous enough to start, but you glycemic just makes the challenge even harder to manage these patients. Yeah, because if if it's not diagnosed, then it could mm-hmm. gone untreated, and then you know the patient could crash or go into the coma. Coma is bad. <laughs> yes, hundred percent bad. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend. Yeah. Um, anyway, thanks, Jobin, for sharing this case with us. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a good learning opportunity. Yeah, I learned a lot <laughs> from this case. I was like, oh, wow, I haven't seen DK like this. In a... <laughs> I haven't seen DK like this. There you have it, guys. Something interesting every day. Yeah, you never know what you can see in the ER, especially. Yeah. Um, so, as always, thanks for listening to our show, and hopefully we'll see you next time. All right. See you guys. Have a good one.